The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We always have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are ready for the worship uh, by the study of God's Word. A few moments of silent prayer for confession of sin, if necessary, the privacy of your soul to God the Father. So let's uh, begin with prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to worship you through the study of your word, that your word is a light into our feet and a lamp into our path, and Father, it is your word that guides and directs us. We pray that you would help us to understand it and see its significance for our lives, that we may uh, renovate our thinking, that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. We have been studying last time, in the last couple of weeks, the formation of the nation. How God has, through Abraham, called out, called into existence a new nation through whom God is going to bring salvation to the end of the earth. We saw that this was necessitated after the flood by the rebelliousness of man and their refusal to obey God and to scatter throughout the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. And instead, they gathered themselves together at uh, Babel, the Tower of Babel, where they were going to make a name for themselves in rebellion against God. So God called out Abraham, exercising a new initiative in human history to call out a unique people to himself. And then we studied the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the approximately 480 years that the uh, Hebrews spent in Egypt, as slaves, and then the Exodus event last time. Now, we said last time that there are three prerequisites to having a nation. First, you have to have a people. Second, you have to have a law or a constitution. And third, you have to have land. Last time with the Exodus, we saw the origination of the people as God acquired for himself a people. That is the uh, the Passover which is a portrayal, as we will see, of our redemption, where God purchases us with the precious blood of a lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what that uh, relates to. This morning what I want to do is cover the first part or introduction to the law and how that is set up. But first we need to see how this whole event works out uh, typologically to see its relationship to our own Christian life. 1 Corinthians 10.6 states, Now these things, in that passage it's talking about and has rehearsed many of these events in the early history of Israel and surrounding the Exodus and the Exodus generation. And Paul says, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. The word that is translated examples is the Greek word tupas. Tupas has to do with a, a, a mark, a stamp, a mold, a model, and we develop from that, what is developed from that is a technical 
uh, theological terminology of, of a type. And a type is an Old Testament illustration that pictures, it's like a visual aid that pictures uh, something to do with the person or the work of Jesus Christ and visualizes a theological or doctrinal principle that becomes evident in the New Testament. And so it's a foreshadowing technique. For example, the Lamb of God. Uh, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus Christ and his uh, sacrifice on the cross where he died as a substitute for our sins. So that's the essence of typology. Now this has been carried to extremes and you always have to be careful and let the scriptures define what is typological and what is not typological. And in the entire working of God in the history of the nation Israel, you see different elements in their, in their, in their development which portray the order of salvation and how God uh, has worked in our lives. For example, first of all, you have election. This is the choice of Abraham. God called out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and selected him. That's the essential meaning of election is selection. God called out Abraham and promised that through him he would bless all the nations. This was an unconditional work on the part of God. There was nothing in Abraham that necessitated that. It doesn't have to do with his salvation. It's not a violation of free will. In fact, if you look at the overall context, I touched briefly on it when we looked at Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is in the uh, shape or form of what was called a royal land grant in the, old te- in the um, ancient world. And a royal land grant was a secondary sort of gift that was bestowed by the king upon a, a loyal subject. It did not have to do with that subject entering into the relationship with the king to begin with, but that the king would come along to this subject and out of his own uh, goodness and graciousness for his own purposes would then freely give some land or grant some land to the subject. So that's the model of the Abrahamic covenant is the ancient royal land grant. So God chooses Abraham. So we have the picture of election in the choice of Abraham. And then we have the picture of adoption, the believer's adoption into the family of God with the Abrahamic covenant itself. It is on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant that the nation, the descendants of of Abraham, are adopted as God's uh, son. So the Abrahamic covenant pictures the adoption of the nation. In all of this, the nation as a whole is viewed as redeemed. Now this is a little difficult concept to handle because there's no such thing as a Christian nation because nations aren't saved. But the nation of Israel is pictured as being redeemed because they are brought out of slavery. It is merely a picture. It's not a statement necessarily that every individual is saved, but that Israel is a unique nation in all of human history because God has chosen them to be the the, uh, mediating priest nation through whom God will bless all other nations. So in that sense, these events in Israel's history portray for us certain elements in uh, salvation and the spiritual life. So we have election in the selection of Abraham, adoption with the Abrahamic covenant, and then redemption and regeneration is portrayed through the Passover. Scripture says that we were not redeemed with corruptible things from our empty manner of life, such as silver and gold, but from the blood, the precious blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. And this is what takes place at the Exodus event. They are in slavery. The whole world is under condemnation of death. The eldest son in each household and each family would be taken that night when the angel of death passed over unless the blood of the spotless lamb was applied to the doorpost of the house. And when the blood of the lamb is applied, then the angel passed over. And because of the blood payment, the, the sacrificial death of the lamb, which portrays the death of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary atonement when he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and that then we are removed, or the death penalty of sin is removed from us. So it is the Passover that is a picture of our redemption and regeneration. And then there is the passing through the Red Sea, which is a portrayal of, according to 1 Corinthians 10, a picture of, it's called the baptism into Moses. They're identified with Moses through passing through the Red Sea. And that is a portrayal for the believer of our baptism into Christ, our identification with Christ. That's the essential meaning of baptism. It is not getting wet. It's not being immersed in water. It is identification. 
if you think about the Exodus event, the children of Israel were baptized. The Hebrews are baptized into Moses. They're identified with Moses in deliverance. They pass through the Red Sea on dry land. The only ones who get wet are the Egyptians, and they're drowned. So don't think that baptism automatically means getting wet. Baptism primarily has the connotation or the denotation of identification. So it is at this point with the uh, Exodus event and the deliverance at the Passover and that that the nation becomes the people of God. But it is not until they are given the Mosaic Law that they get the principles for living as the people of God. So salvation takes place first before the giving of the law made the point last time, I want to re-emphasize it, that people who think that the Mosaic Law was the basis for salvation in the Old Testament get things completely backwards. According to the typological order, salvation takes place first, then God gives his requirements for living. Salvation is always based on grace, never based on, on obedience. And the, the uh, Mosaic Law uh, prescribes not only the principles of civil law for believer and unbeliever alike in the nation, but also ceremonial law related to the believers in the nation. So in a sense, typologically, the Mosaic law is a type of the sanctification uh, mandates for the believer in the church age. There are always mandates, there's always commands and prohibitions for believers in every generation. They just change. The Mosaic covenant was given specifically to the nation Israel, and throughout the Old Testament, whenever God presents an indictment against the Gentile nations, it is never on the basis of violating anything in the Mosaic Law. If you go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, the minor prophets, whenever there are condemnations or judgments brought against the Gentile nations, it is always on the basis of violating something either in relation to the Noahic Covenant, they have uh, erected idols, they're violating... Uh, God's standard in that arena, or they are hostile to Israel. They are anti-Semitic, and God promised Abraham that the nations who curse you, I in turn will curse. The nations who treat you lightly, I will judge. So that is the basis for all the judgments of the Gentile nations. You can't demonstrate anywhere that they are in violation of the Mosaic Law. Of course, certain principles, as we'll see, such as the prohibition of murder, did not begin with the Mosaic Law. They have uh, their basis in the origination of history. Murder has always been wrong, not because it's in the Ten Commandments, but because it violates God's purposes from the beginning of time, as exemplified in the episode with Cain and Abel. Now, up to this point in history, up to the Exodus event, the common denominator in the nation Israel was simply the acceptance of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as their God. And that circumcision was the sign of that covenant. Circumcision is not specifically related to the Mosaic Covenant, but it's specifically the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. But that is the totality of the spiritual life. They don't have much more revelation than that. It is not until they come to Sinai that they are given a complete constitution that entails both or entails civil law, criminal law, and ceremonial law. And that is basically the outline of the Mosaic Covenant. When we use the word Old Testament, the word testament comes from the Hebrew word berit, B-E-R-I-T, berit, and berit means a contract, a covenant, or a constitution. And I think if we think of the Mosaic Covenant as analogous to our constitution, we can have a greater understanding of its significance. God is setting up a nation, a nation of priests, as we will see from uh, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, and this is to be their law code. Just as the U.S. Constitution and body of law is not applicable to someone in some other nation, neither was the Mosaic Law applicable to anyone else in any other nation. It is God's outline of civil, and cer- civil criminal, and ceremonial law for the nation Israel. So when we speak about the Old Testament, we're talking about the Old Constitution or the New Testament, the New Constitution, and just those very terms indicate and demonstrate that God has shifted the way in which he relates to mankind or administers human history. That is what is also called dispensationalism. 
Now, not everyone holds to dispensationalism, but the essence of dispensationalism is that there is a distinction in history between the way God works with Israel and the way God works with the church, that God has two distinct peoples in history, Israel and the church. We take all of God's promises to Israel to be literal and that if they have not been literally fulfilled yet, they will be literally fulfilled in the future. Now, I have specifically avoided and intentionally avoided in case the question came into your mind, why we haven't mentioned dispensations up to this point, and that is because I wanted to bring them in as the text unfolded, and so I will come back and say some things about dispensations uh, next time. But what we see is that through these covenants, God redefines or reestablishes how he works in human history. And the essential meaning or the root meaning of the word dispensation is an economy. The Greek word from which we have translated the English word dispensation is the Greek word oikonoma, or oikonomia is the adjective. And if you think about it, economy, oikonomia, you can see how the English word economy has uh, originated from the Greek word oikonomos. And oikonomos is a compound word, oikos meaning house, namos meaning law, and it simply relates to the fact that the rules for administering the house have changed at different periods in human history. Just as if you were parents, or most of you at one time, I assume, were children, as you grew up and as you matured, the rules governing your relationship to the house changed. When you were 18, you were treated differently, and there were a different set of rules than when you were 8. When you were 8, it was, there was a different set of rules than when you were 6. If your parents were consistent, the, the principles underlying those rules were the same. For example, God has always operated on the principle of faith alone as the basis for salvation. In the Old Testament, it was a faith that anticipated the fulfillment of the promise. In the New Testament, it is a faith that looks back to the completion of the promise. So that God has always worked on the principle of faith alone in Christ alone, either in anticipation or looking back. But God has modified the way in which he governs or administers human history from age to age, and he does that through giving new revelation. We saw that he defined how Abram, how Adam was to operate in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden, that he was to cultivate and keep the garden. And that key word there to keep the garden or to guard the garden, Shamar, has the idea of worship, and we'll see that in a passage in Exodus 20, and how this is a key word in a covenant. But there was a violation by man of God's prohibition in the garden. And what happened? God had to modify that original creation covenant, that original Edenic covenant with the Adamic covenant and the curse in Genesis chapter 3. And then there is a further disobedience of man with the Noahic flood and God has to come in and he redefines or modifies the covenant again in the Noahic covenant. And that changes some stipulations before Genesis 9, man is a vegetarian, and I believe that between the fall and the flood, God was still mediating justice directly on the earth, whereas after the flood, he now delegates justice to the human race. But there are these modifications, and now because of man's rebellion and failure to obey God, God is calling out a special nation. And this is the thrust of the key passage in Exodus 19, 5-6a, which I think is the core passage for understanding all of the Old Testament. Everything from Genesis and early Exodus up to this point leads to this statement, and everything from the rest of the Old Testament flows out from this statement. In verse 5 we read, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's that word, we'll see again, shamar, which means to keep or to guard. It's the same word that God used in the mandate to to Adam to guard or keep the garden. You will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So the key phrase is that God is calling them out to be a kingdom of priests. The role and function of a priest is to be a mediator, an intermediate between man and God, and this is the role of the nation now in regards to all of the other nations on the earth, that all of the nations would come through Israel to have direct access to God. They are the priest nation. 
So there are three things that we can say develop from this particular verse. First of all, that God is saying that He's going to create a nation that will be a precious and unique treasure. This is the idea. You shall, it's translated in the New American Standard, you will be my own possession, but it's a much stronger word than that in the original Greek. I mean, original Hebrew. To create a nation that will be a precious or unique treasure for Almighty God. Secondly, they are to be a kingdom of priests. That is, access to God will be through the nation Israel. And third, that the nation will be holy. And the root meaning of holy is to be set apart to God for the service of God. So let's look at the first point. It's to create a nation that will be a precious or unique treasure for Almighty God. When God calls them forth, He says, You will obey My voice and keep My covenant. So they are called forth for the specific purpose of obeying God and serving God. And this is a key word here. The word translated keep, uh, shamar, is a key word that is used in covenant to describe the responsibility of the covenant partner to the overlord. Remember, we're going to get into this a little more today, that the model for this covenant is what was called in the ancient world the suzerain-vassal treaty form. If that word's unfamiliar to you, it looks like this. Suzerain is a term that refers to a great king or despot in the ancient world, and he was the great lord, and sometimes one empire would have various smaller kingdoms or nations that they had conquered, and these had a relationship to the overlord as vassal nations. They were servants of the overlord. And this is the model for man's relationship to God. God is pictured as the great king, and man is created to serve God. So the focus or the purpose of the vassal is to serve the great king, which is the purpose of mankind. Now, when God sets this forth, makes this statement in Exodus 19.5, He says, you will, uh, if you obey My voice and keep My covenant, and this should remind us of the fact that man has continuously disobeyed God's covenant. If you obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be My own possession. This is the Hebrew word segula. Segula means a precious treasure, a unique treasure. treasure. It describes something that is that you delight in, like a precious stone. It is something of extreme value to you, of the highest value to you. So when God says, you will be my own possession, He is not simply talking about ownership. He is talking about the value and the significance of the nation Israel to Him above all of the other peoples on the earth. All the, he, God says, all the earth is mine, all the people of my, are mine, but you will be special, you are unique to me. I will specifically delight in you over and above all other peoples. Now, this same passage is taken later in First uh, Peter by Peter and is applied to the church as well. It does not mean that the church has supplanted or replaced Israel. This is the problem with many uh, theological systems is that they portray human history or the human history in such a way that Israel failed God, so they're taken out and replaced by the church. Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, Methodist theologies all interpret the church as the replacement of Israel. This, would, this causes them to have to spiritualize the promises that God made in the Old Testament. When God promises a land to Israel that, that they would fill up certain borders and have a certain amount of land that never was fulfilled in the Old Testament, and the only way to get around that in these other systems is to say, well, God... Uh, had to change his plan, and it's no longer literal, now it's spiritual, and so the land refers to heaven. But that means that God will never fulfill promises he made to Israel, and that has serious problems. So the, we have to believe in a literal and consistent interpretation of Scripture, and that God will eventually uh, completely and literally fulfill his promises to the nation Israel. He has a second plan, a second group of people that he has called forth, and that is the church in the present age, and we are as well a unique and precious people to the Lord. So he has called the nation out, 
that they will be a precious and unique treasure and possession to them. This tells us that the primary purpose for the existence of Israel as a nation is theocentric. It is God-centered. It is not man-centered. This is in contrast to the way uh, human history and human historians interpret this, that Israel finds this as a way to just justify their existence. What this shows is that their existence is based solely and exclusively on God. And as many people have pointed out, in fact, many... uh, uh, people who have a bias against Christianity and the Bible have pointed out it is the existence of Israel, the continued existence of Israel and the Jews throughout history that is one of the greatest evidences for the veracity of the Bible in all, in all of history. Now the second reason God calls them forth is to be a kingdom of priests. It is through them that the other nations will have access to God. So it is through the priesthood of Israel and the sacrificial system of Israel, that God will bring other nations into a relationship with Him. And of course, that's ultimately fulfilled in the first advent in Jesus Christ, who is the seed. Galatians chapter 3 says He is the seed of Abraham. And 1 Timothy 2.4 says that there is only uh, one mediator between God and man, and this is the man, Christ Jesus. So ultimate fulfillment of this is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then third, the nation is to be holy. And we saw that the word holy does not imply necessarily purity. That's a secondary concept that we bring to the word in certain contexts. But the root meaning of kadash is to be set apart to the service of God, to be set apart exclusively to God. Something was called common or profane because it was used for many different purposes. But if something, for example, the furniture in the, in the tabernacle, uh, the dish, dishes and the, all the other utensils, were set apart to God. They were called kadash because they were set apart to be exclusively used for the purpose of God. They were not to be used for everyday purposes. So that is the root meaning of profane and common. Now the the Mosaic Covenant is really laid out according to the pattern of a suzerain vassal treaty. Now this was a treaty form that was commonly used and is found in political documents all over the ancient Near East in the 2nd millennium B.C. That is, from 1000 B.C. to 2000 B.C., this is the treaty form that predominated. So this in itself is a witness to the fact that this, uh, that the Mosaic Covenant was given at this time in history. You can't late date it. You can't say that this was put together after the uh, Babylonian captivity by, the, uh, by some priesthood because by uh, 500 B.C., no one knew this existed. And of course, that's the typical liberal uh, theological position is that uh, it was after the Babylonian captivity that the priests got together and then they just basically wrote, took various oral traditions of Israel, put it together, and came up with, with the Old Testament. And they would not have known about these ancient treaty forms and things like that. So this clearly puts the origination of the Mosaic Covenant in the historical context of the second millennium B.C. We have a very similar document which was found in the New Kingdom Hittite capital city of Hattusha, which is the same fundamental pattern. And this is what most uh, Old Testament scholars go to to help uh, elucidate the background of the, old, of the Old Covenant. It begins with a, with a preamble, which is found in Exodus chapter 20, Verse 2, why don't we open our Bibles to the 20th chapter of Exodus. We'll spend the rest of the morning in this chapter. Exodus chapter 20. It was typical in the ancient documents that when the king began to introduce himself, he would go on and on and on and very verbose hyperbolic language explaining how great he was and how powerful he was. And in contrast to that, you just have a very short, concise, powerful statement in the preamble. God says simply, I am the Lord your God. He doesn't expand on it. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't prove his existence. He simply presupposes who he is and states it to the Hebrews. I am the Lord your God. This pre- he then goes on in this next section, which is called the historical prologue, to identify 
the parties involved in the contract and their historical relationship. This is the second part of verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, we said when I started this introduction that, in fact, the entire Pentateuch is laid out on this same pattern. You have the the historical uh, preamble in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, or the preambles in the first two or three chapters of Genesis, and then the remainder of Genesis and into the first 18 chapters of Exodus is really the historical prologue for the whole Pentateuch. For it is in Genesis and early Exodus that God uh, rehearses all that He has done in bringing the nation, bringing the people into existence. So there's these two elements, uh, a preamble where, which identifies the, va- the, uh, the suzerain and then the historical prologue which identifies or rehearses what the suzerain has done as a protector, as a gracious and benevolent uh, king in favor of the vassal. Oftentimes in the ancient treaties, the vassal was pictured as someone who violated the law, violated previous contracts, and so the suzerain sets himself up as being very gracious and kind, always beneficial to the vassal. The next section in the, these treaties was the stipulations section. The stipulations, these would set out all of the requirements for the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal. And what we have here is two, two sections really in the Mosaic Covenant. You have the general requirements, which are what we call the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 17, outlines the general requirements. And then specific requirements are stated uh, beginning in Exodus 20, verse 22, down through 23, 13. And this section is also referred to as the Book of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments represent, in, in some sense you could say that the, the Ten Commandments are almost like the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. It is just a very general summary of basic uh, principles that undergird everything else in the Mosaic Covenant. When you get into the Book of the Covenant in verse 22, then we find case law, which is the uh, forerunner and is the uh, model on which U.S. law is based. We have a legal system that is based on case law and has its uh, historical precedent established in the Mosaic Law. This is a nation where the founding fathers were influenced by a Judeo-Christian heritage. And it is that concept of law as something that was absolute that is the foundation of of the nation. That law comes from a higher source. It comes from God. It is not something that has its ultimate origination point in the creation. This is what we find in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. When God says, I am the Lord your God, these are not ten suggestions, these are ten commandments. This is not something that people vote on. This is, I am the foundation because I am absolute. I am the ultimate foundation for law, for absolute right and wrong in the universe. So the first section deals with the preamble, the second with the historical prologue, the third covers the stipulations, general and specific, and then the fourth division, the fourth element in a Susan vassal treaty would be a provision to, to remember, to read, to store the covenant so that it would be read from generation to generation. This, of course, is further developed in Deuteronomy, but in Exodus as well, you have this laid out in Exodus 24, verses 2 through 7 that the covenant is to be read to all of the peoples to remind them of what God has done for them and what the stipulations are. Then there were witnesses. The witnesses here would be all of the tribes on the one hand because they witnessed God, they heard God speak from the mountain. When God speaks to uh, Israel, look at the end of verse of chapter 19. rather. Chapter 19, just look up the last three verses. Uh, 19. Exodus 19.23, we read, Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Sinai, for thou didst warn us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate. Then the Lord said, Go down, come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, warned them not to come up on the mountain, and then God spoke all these words. God is speaking. When God gives the Ten Commandments, He is speaking audibly from Mount Sinai to the entire 
assembly of people at the base of the mountain. If you had been there with your recorder, you could have recorded the actual voice of God delivering the Ten Commandments to the nation. It is at the end of that that the people are afraid and they say, Moses, go get the rest of it because we can't stand to hear the voice of God anymore. It's too convicting. So then Moses went up into the mountain, spent 40 days on the mountain where he's given the tablets and the law, and when he came back, that's during the whole episode with the golden calf. So this is, this is the framework. There is a provision for reading this and, and for, and the witnesses are all the tribes that are gathered at the foot of the mountain, and they put up, uh, piles of stones as markers, as historical memorials that later generations could go back and they would see those, those rock cairns and it would be a, a reminder that this was the reason those cairns were there, that something had happened in history where God had spoken to the people. So on the one hand, for witnesses to the contract, you have the tribes on the one hand and then the altar on the other hand represents God and these are the two witnesses, the altar for God, the the uh, tribes for the people as a witness to the contract. And then there would be a blessing and curses section in the treaty. The suzerain would say, if you follow the treaty, if you obey me and do everything that I tell you to do, then I will bless you and provide these benefits for you. If you disobey me and violate the contract, violate the treaty, then this is what will happen to you. So there are these various uh, blessings and curses and these are laid out in Exodus 23, 20 to 23, and there are also further developed in Leviticus 25 and also in, in Deuteronomy. Now, the Mosaic Covenant is normally referred to by the phrase conditional covenant. Conditional covenant. Now, in some sense, I don't like that term because there are, in, in some sense, some conditional elements even in the, in the Abrahamic covenant. But the, and even in the other covenant, if you obey me, then I'll do this. There's this element of blessing for obedience in all of the covenants. So in that sense, there's a, there's an element of conditionality. But that's become the accepted terminology is that all of the covenants, the Adamic covenant, Edenic covenant, Noahic covenant, uh, the New covenant, Davidic covenant, all these are, con- are unconditional covenants. God promises unilaterally to do certain things for, for the people, for the human race, for the nation Israel, and it's not conditioned upon their obedience. The term I really like best is temporary versus permanent. All of those covenants are permanent in a sense in human history, whereas the Mosaic Covenant was never designed to be permanent. It was designed to be temporary. It was designed to be solely for the nation Israel and only to be in effect until Jesus Christ came in the first advent at the incarnation or really at the crucifixion. It was at the crucifixion that Jesus ended the law according to Romans. He is the end of the law. So in, in one sense, I really prefer the temp- terminology temporary versus permanent as opposed to conditional versus unconditional, but that's become pretty much the accepted terminology. And I know that if I made a radical shift there, somebody would start getting very upset with me. So I just want to make that clarification that the Mosaic Covenant was never designed to be a, an everlasting covenant whereas the other covenants were designed. Moses, I mean, the Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant. The uh, real estate covenant or the land grant covenant, which is covered in Deuteronomy, the promise of the land, it's sometimes called the Palestinian covenant, is an everlasting and eternal covenant with Israel. The Davidic covenant is an everlasting or eternal non-ending covenant. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant. God does not intend to replace those. They are not uh, temporary And this is the argument in Hebrews chapter 6 that the reason it is called the Old Covenant is because it was expected to pass away and be replaced by the New Covenant. That is, the very terminology, new, indicates that there there was envisioned in the plan of God that the Mosaic Covenant itself was temporary in nature. So it was designed only for the nation Israel and in order to preserve the nation and to keep them, to preserve the nation, to protect the nation, and to keep them separate from the influences, the pagan influences and the idolatry of all of the other nations in order to uh, prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Now, when we look at the organization of of the Mosaic Covenant itself, the Mosaic Constitution, there are three parts. The first part 
is the introduction, the Ten Commandments. Literally in the Hebrew, it is the Ten Words in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 down through verse 17 is the Ten Commandments. This is the first section. It's sometimes called the Decalogue or the Ten Words. And this presents the eternal, moral, righteous will of God for the people. This is the foundation for freedom in a nation. The ultimate foundation is found in the first four commandments, and that is a recognition of the sovereignty of God. The next six commandments recognize the importance of privacy and private ownership of property in a nation and personal individual liberty. And it is upon this basis and the understanding of that that, in the, for example, in the history of, of English law, you have, uh, for example, Blackstone, who was a very famous uh, jurist in the uh, 17th century or 18th century, was foundational in the understanding of the nature of law in forming the U.S. Constitution and legal system. Blackstone was virtually memorized by, by everyone in the uh, 18th century. So, and if you read Blackstone, he goes through and, get, and bases many of his arguments for the nature of law on the Ten Commandments and, and extrapolating the root meaning and understanding legal principles that underlie each one of these commandments. Whereas they seem to be very short commandments. Embodied in those commandments is a tremendous amount of presupposition that is the basis for understanding personal liberty and privacy. For example, when we get down to the command for, for um, uh, uh, murder. So the prohibition of murder means you have a right to, to, um, uh, to your own life. And that's the foundation for many other, other laws and concepts. And then the commandment you shall not steal is a recognition that there is a legitimate basis for private ownership of property and it does not derive from a federal government, neither... Uh, does it derive from a social contract, but it derives from the very nature that God built into creation. So that violates both socialism and communism. And whenever you start getting into uh, any arena of government that starts to restrict private ownership and privacy, we're in very great danger today of losing many freedoms because of the Internet. The more you get out on the Internet, the more personal information is available to anybody who can pull anything down. Any information you have out there is is just fair game. Somebody can find you all your credit card information. They can trace all your history, everything you bought and sold for the last for your whole life. Somebody gets a hold of your social security number. You know, everybody knows everything there is to know about you. You've lost that privacy, and to that degree, you, we're losing freedom. And this, there are tremendous problems now that we have to deal with as a culture and legally because of the way we're losing privacy. And one thing that goes along with the loss of privacy is, is always a loss of freedom. So you have to have, there's a relationship between private ownership of property, uh, freedom, as well as the whole concept of security. And I ran into this when I was over in Belarus five years ago, that after the tremendous revolution they had at the, and shift away from communism at the beginning of the 90s in, in Russia and in the Soviet, former Soviet bloc, that the people were now, now had freedom, but they didn't have capacity for freedom. They didn't have any training in responsibility. And what happened because of the uh, depraved elements in that society, the K old KGB uh, power lords just shifted and became what's now called the Russian Mafia. And that's the origination of the Russian Mafia. And I heard stories about how these, these guys would pull up into a gas station. There weren't very many gas stations in Belarus. There were maybe two or three in town. And they would have maybe uh, two or three hours to get two or three gallons of gas. And the missionaries would usually hire somebody in a truck that would drive all the way to Moscow for 10 hours and fill up jerry cans full of gasoline and then haul it back and then they kept it stored in a garage. But they would have these gas lines and these uh, Russian mafia guys would just pull up, cut in line, drive right up to the pump. Five or six guys with Uzis would pop out of the car and hold everybody back and they would fill up, not pay, and then drive off. And, it, and what happened was because they had no concept of, of private ownership that had never been taught them under a communist regime, they had no concept of private ownership and, and true freedom that when they were given freedom, 
it became anarchy because they had no concept. And so you had, and what you've seen over in Russia and in the Soviet bloc is this expansion of um, of inflation, high triple-digit inflation over there. And now people who under communism could afford a decent car, could afford good food, could go on a vacation anywhere in the Soviet bloc. They could go down to the Crimea for the summer. They had a, a pretty good standard of living under communism, and they've lost all of that. And now they have two or three families living in what we would call a three-bedroom apartment. One family, uh, the, the, the amount of money one family makes to live one month uh, pays the rent. Another family, the uh, usually the children, will have you know, you know, two or three generations all living together, and one family will make enough money to pay for the food for everybody, and then the other fam- family might have enough money that would help out with spending money. So it takes that many people just to survive now. They, and so there's no security. There's no economic security. Well, when there's no economic security, uh, what people do is look to government to provide the security. So they want to go back to communism. So you see that there is this relationship between an absence, uh, and, and the same dynamic took place with the Exodus generation. They came out of a slavery situation. When they got into the wilderness, they had no concept of freedom. And what did they want to do? Take us back to Egypt. We want the leeks and the garlics of Egypt as opposed to the milk and honey in the land of Canaan. We don't, want, we don't really want to trust God. It's too hard to be personally responsible and accountable for our actions. For in true freedom, you not only have the freedom to succeed, but to the degree that you have the freedom to succeed, you should also have the freedom to fail. And when you have a government come, a, come along and provide a safety net so that people can't fail, in order to provide that safety net, they have to cut away a certain amount of freedoms at the top. So the more you limit your freedom to fail at the bottom, the more you're going to limit your freedom to succeed at the top. And this ultimately goes develops into communism and socialism. Now, under the pre- precept of the Mosaic Covenant, you have true freedom. And that freedom is based on responsibility. There is within the structure of the Mosaic Covenant the provision to take care of the destitute. But it is not on the basis of a welfare state or a dole as they have in England. It is on the basis of private charity and the basis of graciousness. All of this is part of this document and it is the study of it has profound implications for understanding the, the nature of government, the nature of economics, the nature of law and criminal justice, as well as the nature of freedom and liberty. And we don't have time to go into all of that, but I just want to say those things by way of introduction. So the first part of the law is the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, which establishes the basis for freedom in the nation, the basis for the rule of law in the nation. And it is all grounded in the recognition that God is the one true God and the Creator, and that He, in His character, is the source of absolute law. The second division is the Torah. This literally means instruction. Torah sometimes is translated simply as law. It refers to the judgments. It's, it's a combination of the judgments, the mishpatim, and the regulations. And this is a case law designed for believer and unbeliever alike. It governed all of the social and economic life and political life of the nation Israel. It provided for penalties for criminal action and also is based upon the uh, judicious use of the death penalty. Now, there's been a lot of discussion lately because uh, in this country, uh, apparently in places, they they get very upset, and rightly so, that there are people who are uh, sent to the... uh, people who are executed who it turns out did not commit the crime. Well, God in His omniscience knows that man is not infallible, that man is going to make mistakes, and that there are going to be innocent people executed under the death penalty. Nevertheless, both in the Noahic Covenant and in the Mosaic Covenant, God stipulated that there would be a death penalty. One of the interesting things to observe, though, is in terms of criminal law and and the penal code in the Mosaic Covenant, it's not based upon incarceration. See, I think if you're going to really follow a, a biblical pattern, for a, for a judicial system or for a penal code, you, there's retribution here. There is repayment. Uh, it would be along the lines that there's a certain number of crimes and that, that you, if you commit a certain number of crimes, then you're just removed from society through execution. If you commit other types of crimes against property, then you have to repay fivefold or tenfold. 
And so that's, that's the basic. There's no incarceration. You don't tr- reduce men to treat them something like animals. I think it, it's, it's very interesting. I think we would have a much better judicial system if we would go back and pattern it on the Mosaic Law, not make the Mosaic Law the law of the land. I'm not saying that. That, that, would, that would be wrong because that's not the basis, but it's a pattern to look at how they handle things. See, the basis for the whole penal system is that man, its it, it purpose is to now is to rehabilitate man. But if you look at the underlying philosophy of the Mosaic Code, it's not designed to rehabilitate man, but to repay. It's based upon the victim. It's not based upon the rights of the criminal. And the victim has been uh, acted against and he needs to be remunerated and the uh, person who commits the crime needs to be punished. It is a penalty system. It is not a rehabilitation system. And we've been so influenced by the uh, by liberal ideas that have developed over the last 200 years that we have lost sight of the purpose of a criminal justice system. All of this is derived from a study of the Mosaic Covenant. So the second portion is the Torah or judgments. And then the third division is the religious or the cultic regulations, the dress for the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the, all of the furniture in the tabernacle and later the temple. All of these are laid out. And this is covered in Exodus chapter 25 through uh, Leviticus and on up to Numbers chapter 12. All of the religious and cultic regulations are covered in Exodus 25 through Leviticus and then on into Numbers 12. Now let's just go through Briefly, the, uh, we'll just get started in the Ten Commandments before we go on. First of all, it begins in Exodus 21, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So the basis for law, the basis for all law, is the existence of God. The Ten Commandments, are divided into two sections. The first four commandments regulate Israel's relationship to God. This explains why the nations exist and governs their their relationship to God and how they will how they should worship God and their exclusive relationship to God. In Exodus chapter twenty, verse five, we read, "You shall not worship them that is idols." Or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, the last six commandments, the second division, covers the last six commandments, which covers man's relationship to man. In the first four commandments, there are explanations related to each commandment. For example, when God says, You shall not worship them or serve them, He then gives the reason. Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. But in the last six commandments, there is no explanation. There is simply the the mandates to honor your father and your mother. Uh, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's house. All of these are given without explanation. And probably the reason for that is that these had been accepted. They had been in operation. You have similar mandates in the Code of Hammurabi and other ancient law codes. And this goes all the way back to creation. So they needed no explanation. There was a clear understanding that these were uh, absolutes that went back to the original uh, creative mandate and that man was created in the image of God and it was socially understood. It is those first four commandments that relate to their, their relationship to God that sets them apart as a unique nation. The first commandment is found in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, two questions arise as we think about this. First of all, does this teach or imply polytheism? The way it is structured in the English, have no other gods before me, does that imply that you can have other gods, just don't place them before me? That would uh, imply polytheism or the worship of many gods. Now, the way that is normally expressed or presented in college classrooms presupposes an evolution of religion framework. If you've ever taken a sociology course or any world history course, then you were taught that, that, that just as man evolved, 
religious concepts evolved from the uh, more primitive forms, which would be polytheism, to the more advanced forms, such as monotheism. First time I ran into this was in my first year in college in Western civilization, and I was taught by the professor that um, the monotheism really originated with the, one of the last pharaohs in the um, Egyptian 18th dynasty, Akhenaten. He was called the sun worshiper, and he elevated one of the many gods in the Egyptian pantheon to the position of the one god. But he didn't come until a couple of generations after Moses, allegedly. So therefore, Moses could not, the argument goes, Moses could not have been teaching a strict monotheism because it didn't exist yet. Monotheism wasn't invented until Akhenaten came along. You see, there is this continual juxtaposition and antagonism between what is taught on the basis of evolutionary concepts in in our classrooms and what the Scripture says. Uh, The contention of liberal theology, which buys into an evolutionary presupposition, is that Moses at best was a henotheist. Henotheism says there are many gods, but we're going to promote one to a position of uh, as, as the highest or the exclusive uh, worship. But this is um, completely foreign to this concept and it's really clear from this passage and from other passages that Moses' monotheism pre-existed uh, any other condition. And I mentioned earlier a work by a Jesuit priest named Schmidt. He was a sociologist. Went through every single culture that known all of the uh, Asian cultures, all of the uh, Polynesian cultures, all the African cultures, and did this work back in the early part of the 20th century and traced back their religious history and discovered that every religious system in the history of the human race originated with one God. They were originally monotheistic. So there is nothing uh, historically contradictory or problematical with Moses uh, promoting a pure monotheism in the Ten Commandments. Monotheism clearly pre-existed any of these other cultures as as the Bible clearly affirms. Now, in this statement, what God is saying is that there would be no other God at all because whenever you come along and you uh, would, at, at any given point, perhaps go to one God or another God in order to gain favor for crops or fertility or whatever it might be, at that particular point you would be giving priority to some other God than God. That's what this is saying. You will at no point in your life give priority to anything other than me. It is a statement of exclusivity that there is no other God than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is uh, confirmed by what Moses says later in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, in relation to the idols and all of the other gods, that what really underlies polytheism is demonism. In Deuteronomy 32:17, we read, they, referring to the Egyptians and their sacrifice to their idols, are said they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread. But the point is in that first phrase that demons underlie Idolatry. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. That all idolatry, all false gods, ultimately represent some form of demon worship and uh, demon activity, demonism. So the first commandment prescribes uh, monotheism and the second command, commandment prescribes idolatry. Beginning in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and, on the, third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Well, we're about out of time and there's a lot to cover here, especially on that concept of the third and fourth generation curse as well as God being jealous, and what exactly does that mean? So we'll have to wait and conclude our coverage of the Ten Commandments next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word today to see how how so many principles, so many vital principles related to freedom, related to uh, security, related to government, related to law, are ultimately grounded in Your revelation. 
Father, we pray too that uh, there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that You have indeed worked in human history and in Your grace You have initiated a salvation plan that is focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Scripture says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The way to make that salvation real in our life is to trust Christ as Savior. Scripture says the only condition is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to clearly think through the things that we have studied today, to remember them and that we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.